things. Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke? Open the Word of God to the Gospel of Luke and find your way to the opening chapter of this great book from the ancient world. The title of my message this morning for this Lord's Day is Jesus, Jericho, and Judgment. Three words, Jesus, Jericho, and Judgment. As we get into our study, the words of the title will make sense as they describe a person, a place, and a theme for our study today. With Palm Sunday approaching next weekend, I wanted to take us into Luke chapter 19 to study what is going on in the life and the teaching of the historical Jesus as the holiday of Palm Sunday was approaching. That said, that, that's why we are going to be in Luke 19 this Lord's Day, and next week we'll be in Luke 19 again on Palm Sunday. We will pick up where we left off in our study from this morning next Lord's Day. In today's sermon, I aim to expositionally move through the opening of Luke 19, covering 27 verses of the chapter in total, explaining the meaning of the text in its historical context with careful pastoral application to our modern context today. Now, speaking of context, before you turn to chapter 19, I asked you a moment ago to open to the opening chapter, Luke chapter 1, to give us some context for our study in the 19th chapter. The opening of the book gives us data about the intention of the author and the purpose of this piece of literature that is pre preserved for us through the sands of time. That said, contrary to what skeptics would say who mindlessly and without evidence claim that this book that we have in our hands has been changed by, by scribes and people over time. It's been changed. It's been corrupted. And, and who are you, you Christians, with that book? You can't trust that book. Everyone knows it's been changed over time. They'll even appeal to the illustration of kids playing that telephone game where one kid passes down to another kid something, and by the time it gets to the end of the line of the kids, what it began with is vastly different uh, at, at the very end of it. You know, your, your Bible's like the telephone game. Your Bible has changed. It's been corrupted by scribes. Now, with regard to the Gospel of Luke, we have an ancient manuscript that is known as papyri, uh, Papyrus 4. Uh, colloquially, we just call it P4. And P4, let me show you a picture of it. It was found in 1889 in the ruins of the ancient city of Koptos, which is known as Kift today. It's a small town in Egypt. This amazing find of P4 uh, that is in front of you takes us back into the ancient world, and it, it, it does away with these bogus claims that the text has changed over time. In fact, let me show you this, uh, this piece of the Gospel of Luke was actually uh, found inside of this cool leather bag. Don't you want one of those leather bags? That was all the rage back then, and I would rock it. And nowadays, I bring that man bag back. It was a cool leather bag. It's got Bible in it. In fact, it also had on the inside, when it was discovered, two treatises by the philosopher Philo. So contrary, again, to skeptics who would claim that, you know, believers are sort of anti-intellectual or something like that. No, where we find the text of Scripture in the ancient world, we also find the most sophisticated text of the day next to them. Here is that picture of P4. Here is that satchel in which it was found. Here is the evidence from the ancient world. This papyrus that we call P4 contains six fragments on four pages from the Gospel of Luke in Greek that dates as early as the 100s. Now, it is, of course, damaged by time, like all ancient manuscripts that go back that are that old, but thankfully that little leather pouch and the conditions of where it was found preserved much of it. 
And you can make out much of the text and you can compare the text to the modern Bible that we hold inside of our hands and see the utter nonsense of the claim that the Bible was corrupted or that the Bible is not trustworthy. If you have the opportunity to go to France, you can visit the National Library of France in, in Paris and you could see P4, that's where it's held today. And you can zoom in and you can see something really cool. Uh, on P4 there is a reference to the Gospel of Matthew. And it says, Euangelion kata Matthion, that is the gospel, Euangelion, according to Matthew. So unfortunately, the text is super old. We don't get the rest of it. You know, we get the pieces of it. But it shows you, in terms of evidence, that these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, very early, and they were read together. They, they, they weren't, you know, uh, elaborating in some sort of a scheme to make up this, you know, historical Jesus into this God-man or whatever. No, these, these texts were read together. They were compiled together. They were viewed canonically. Communities began to read them and revere them as Scripture. You know that to date we have over 140 papyri like this. Additionally, we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament in universities and libraries around the world. We have over 5,000 complete or fragmented Greek New Testaments. We have over 10,000 in Latin manuscripts. As well, we have over 9,000 from various other ancient languages such as Syriac, Ethiopic, Coptic, Armenian translations, and more. Some of these, they go back like, like this to, to as early as the 100s, most notably P52, which is our oldest piece of a, of, of a gospel text. So uh, again, though, speaking of Luke, we have this amazing piece of archaeology in front of us in P4. And let me show you another one. This is Codex Alexandrinus. This dates back a few hundred years after P4, or, uh, in the 400s. What you are looking at in front of you is Folio 41 of the Gospel of Luke. Unlike P4, this has all of the Gospel of Luke intact. In fact, basically, it has all the New Testament and all of the Hebrew Bible translated in Greek. If you ever travel to London, you can go to the British Library and you can see it for yourself. Meanwhile, I've got pictures here for you to see and you can go on and research further and see that the reality is that what we have in front of us in our contemporary English Bibles today stands to the scrutiny of time. It is not the product of scribes making up stories. It is recorded history preserved through time. Speaking of time, the skeptics might respond to this evidence with, you know, m more claims. They say things like, yeah, well, okay, fine, you, you know, you can show that it has been corrupted and changed, but we all know that history is written by the winners, and you guys are the winners in, you know, Western history, you know, you Christians, you winners of the West, and, and so, of course, you, you win because you're the winners, and that's how that works. But it is worth noting historically that that also doesn't stand up to scrutiny or the data that is available. Christians were not the winners. For hundreds of years, they were not the winners. Uh, rather than having their literature copied by the masses uh, for scribal alter altercation, their books were burned and their bodies were burned for hundreds of years. And yet, in the providence of God, we have evidence of the text and its tradition. In history, we see those who were willing to die for what they saw with their own eyes and what they read in the pages of those who were burned and abused and battered and executed. They, they gave their lives for this. And speaking of those who were there, who saw it themselves, or who were touched by those who did and died for it, this book was written by the historical Luke, who was a part of the eyewitness community of those who met and followed Jesus in his life. 
Luke may possibly be one of the 70 disciples that are mentioned in Luke chapter 10. Subsequently, they, the disciples of Jesus, came to worship Jesus and herald Jesus as God's salvation through painfully and powerfully encountering Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead, not to mention through the power of his words and the work of the Spirit. The Gospel of Luke, uh, together with the book of Acts, uh, the historical Luke penned them both to be read together, they speak of the power of the Spirit working through the life and the teaching, the suffering, the death, and the wondrous resurrection of Jesus to give forgiveness to undeserving sinners and new life. Now speaking of the purpose of his pen, I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter 1, and here we read in the text, look at how it begins, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. You see, Luke isn't writing fairy tales. This isn't the genre of fairy tales, once upon a time, many moons ago. He's, no, no, he's writing history. He speaks of eyewitnesses, he describes evidence and investigation, and, and further penning an accurate, in his words, exact truth account. And, 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 and for this work, for this piece of literature, for this work and for his faith, Luke himself was martyred, he was murdered as a martyr. Tradition reports him to have been hung to death on an olive tree. You see, this book didn't get Luke a spot on the New York Times bestseller list or any accolades. Concerning accolades, he actually walked away from his accolades in his life to give his life to ministry. Luke was a trained physician. He was a, a member of the elite culture, very educated and affluent and the rest, and well-connected in the ancient world, and yet he gave it all away. Speaking of connections, notice that Luke addresses his letter to a person of honor in society with a Greek name, Theophilus. There is a strong case for Luke Acts to not only be a, a historical account of Jesus, but practically it served the purpose of making an appeal for Paul, who at the time of this writing was facing death by the Roman state and other followers as they were being massacred by state powers and, uh, and violent uh, you know, actors in the culture of the day, that this account served for purposes of being an apologetic for those being martyred and arrested. Namely, because the Roman Empire at the time tolerated the Jewish faith. Uh, Rome wasn't too tolerant of other religions, but they tolerated the Jewish faith as a part of colonizing and taking over the land and trying to make peace with that particular people. And so one of the early issues that was hurled against followers of Yeshua, of Jesus, was to say that they're not Jewish. Uh, mind you, he's the Jewish Messiah. Mind you, all the followers are Jewish. Uh, mind you, but as the message went out, more and more non-Jewish people, Gentiles, began to follow, and that created a rift in the culture. So a lot of folks who were on the, the anti-Jesus team were saying, this isn't Judaism. It should not be tolerated. It can't be the God of Israel because look at all those Gentiles who are following him, among them Theophilus included. This isn't our faith. What, what's going on here? I mean, their Messiah assaulted the temple, and their Messiah didn't get along with our, our priests and our figures. How can this actually be 
a representation of the religion that Rome has decided to tolerate. So this ancient text written to this high-profile Theophilus serves the point of showing the continuity of the faith of the followers of Jesus with the God of Israel. This is not a new religion. This is the true manifestation of the God of Israel revealed in the flesh. Speaking of flesh and ethnicity and culture, many moderns today assume that Luke was a Gentile uh, because he's got a Greek name, Lukos. This doesn't mean that he is indeed a Gentile. It was common for Jews in the culture at the time to take on Gentile names. We know, of course, of the great Apostle Paul whose name was Saul. And so it, it's very likely the case, and I'll spare you the argument this morning, that Luke himself is actually a Jewish man. He uses a, a Gentile name, in particular because what we see when we study very closely the text of Luke and Acts together, we see it is highlighting this argument that the Jewish Messiah of Israel had offered not only himself and the prophesied kingdom to the people of Israel, but he had offered himself to be the savior of the world. And so that's why you see Gentiles following him. That's why you see outsiders and outcasts and the lowly and the dirty and the marginalized and the scandalous and the sinners of, of all varieties following after him because the Messiah of Israel is the savior of the world. In fact, the 19th chapter is a historical account making this point. We're going to see the Messiah saving a scoundrel would you turn in your Bibles now to the 19th chapter? So by way of introduction, I wanted you to understand up front that we're dealing with history. We have good reason for trusting its accuracy. I've shared with you some hard data, some manuscripts, and you can go look them up. You can fly to Paris. You can fly to London and see for yourself. Further, by way of introduction, we understand a bit about the author Luke and his context in first century Israel under the shadow of the Roman Empire as a state that was using its force, its forced to kill the followers of Jesus. Jesus himself lost his life under the state powers. Why would such followers be giving their lives willingly for, for this? It's very simple. Their lives were changed by Jesus. Their lives were changed. Why would you die for, for something that, that gives you no earthly reward? You're not getting richer. You're not getting stronger. You're not getting bigger houses, uh, uh, prettier girlfriends, or handsomer boyfriends. You, you're not getting anything out of this. Why would you give your lives for this? Simple. Their lives were changed by Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, we see the story of a changed man, the one known as Zacchaeus, or we say commonly in our culture, Zacchaeus. If you were raised in church, in fact, you no doubt have heard of Zacchaeus. I could close my eyes and I, I can see fuzzy memories of my Sunday school teachers with the flannel board out. In fact, I, I grabbed a little flannel board picture online just to jar some of them for you. And I, I can hear my Sunday school teachers telling little Matt when he was a little boy in church that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in that sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And I, I won't sing the rest, but I mean, you know, this was like the story. This was the go-to in Sunday school. If you, you, you know, you, you had a, a substitute teacher. I mean, this was, a, this was a lesson you got over and over. And the flannel board was there. And little Zacchaeus said, I want to put him in the tree. And, you know, it was good, good times. I could close my eyes and see him. I did a little Google, and I guess it's, it's still going on today. Here, here we've got the wee little man. Uh, you've got, you know... Uh, elementary school Zacchaeus here. Uh, he's, he's like a little boy, little Zacchaeus climbing in the tree. 
And this is a part of the series of, of little Bible heroes, which I don't recommend giving to your kids because it trains them to read the Bible as a bunch of hero narratives, which pulls the Bible out of context. But alas, it's still going on. And in fact, you, you can get online for, for like five bucks at Oriental Trade, uh, a pin the Zacchaeus on the tree game. And, uh, you know, you can have a whole lot of fun blindfolding each other and trying to get Zacchaeus on the tree and and all sorts of these shenanigans, and you've got little cutouts for little puppets of him, and it's all so cute. And the story of Zacchaeus gets washed and sanitized, and Zacchaeus gets moralized into a story about being brave. Be brave. Don't cave into peer pressure. Don't, don't do it. You see the crowds, but he didn't cave into peer pressure. You know that North American uh, football movie, Rudy and the little guy, and he worked really hard. Yeah, be like Rudy, work really hard and climb up and get close to Jesus. And then Jesus will love you if you do that for him and you be brave. So the story gets moralized and allegorized and, and really it just misses the whole point of the text and the whole point of really the gospel that's pointing us to a salvation that we don't deserve by being more brave or, uh, you know, not, not succumbing to peer pressure and the rest. So I'm going to labor this morning uh, knowing that probably uh, among us I have some cleanup from Sunday school or other preachers who've taught you this text, and, and I haven't had the opportunity perhaps before of doing it. So let's get into the text. We've got our introduction. We've got context all set up. The first point in the text in Luke 19 is the sinner and the crowds. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Okay, so let's just, so let's just stop. Let's stop, slow down. Let's talk about things that are going on here so we can understand the text. We need to start by seeing the darkness of the text. Incidentally, if you want to have a little more historical context about what's going on, on the back of the bulletin, you have a detailed map here. Of, of, of Jesus's teaching ministry and where he was and a little map shows you Jericho and this will help to orient and prepare your heart as we're approaching Palm Sunday to know what was going on so with all of this next week when we come in we're gonna have a lot of context to hopefully enrich in our Palm Sunday celebration so okay though let, let, we'll, we'll get to Palm Sunday next week let's get to this that's in front of us I want you to understand the setting is dark we're in the land of Jericho. This is a place that is known for darkness. It was a place that was justly punished by God in the conquest, when you're reading the Hebrew Bible, and thereafter the land was never fully freed from its moral corruption. Later the land was taken over by Babylon, then it was taken over by the Persian Empire, then it was taken over by the Greeks, and then it was taken over by Rome. Here's a picture of the land. Under Rome, the government used Jewish puppet kings. Around the time of Jesus, we think of the Herodians, these Jewish puppet kings. They were used by the Roman government for controlling the people. Herod, Herod, this puppet king, was given power over Jericho by Octavian. And he used his powers in Jericho to overtax the people so that he could build himself palaces in Jericho. He even built a hippodrome theater, Tel S. Samrat. You could go see it today, and here's a picture from holylandphotos.org. A hippodrome was a racetrack. The Greek word for hippos is, a, uh, is horse, and dramos means a course or a track. It's a, it's a horse racing track. Think of the Hollywood Park Casino that we used to have. 
uh, you know, over off of Manchester, uh, not that long ago, actually, but now we got a killer stadium. But anyway, you know, the racetracks and think about what goes on at the racetracks and what sort of, you know, uh, you know atmosphere it is. Uh, Josephus wrote about the history of Rome and its conquest of the land. So we know various detail about what this brought to the area of Jericho. It also served, this hippodrome served as an amphitheater for, for the arts and what have you, and it served also as a worship center for pagan gods. And so the puppet Herod is building pagan worship centers, and he's using those to smooth Roman powers and to entertain his government buddies. Herod had another hippodrome in Caesarea, uh, those of you who went with me to Israel, we visited that one. It can hold 10,000 spectators. And you walk around and you see how massive these hippodromes were and what it meant to the people and the commerce that it brought in and the wealth that it brought in. Jericho was like a Vegas of games and shows. It was like a sin city of its day. It was a place of natural resources. It was known for its palm trees and its perfumes and its palaces and its parties. It was also a place of violence. In many ways, we could say that Jericho looked a lot like the city of Los Angeles. You've got, you know, you've got these weird disparities. You have homeless people and, and mansions. and I mean, you even have small houses that, let's be honest, are the price of mansions. And you go, what is going on? This is such a crazy place. Palm trees and palaces and parties and, and violence. The violence wasn't just on the street. The violence w went all the way up at the top. You know, we might think of, the, of violence in our culture as, oh, you know, lowlifes doing violent things. No, the violence went all the way up to the politicians and the powers. In fact, thinking of Herod. In fact, thinking of Jericho. Herod had a palace in Jericho with famous baths in his palace. And he infamously murdered his own brother-in-law, Aristobulus III, by drowning him to death in his bath in Jericho. Later, he had his sister Miramne executed. Josephus writes about how Herod lured Aristobulus to join into some horseplay in the pool. Hey, me and the guys, were doing a little wrestling in the pool. Why don't you come on in? And then Herod ordered one of his slaves to hold him under the water until he died in Jericho, in his palace. A palace that was built on the backs of the people being overtaxed so that they could build pagan worship centers for, for orgies and false worship and palaces where corrupt politicians drowned people. And all of that was built on the backs of the people being overtaxed. And if you know this story and you have this verse in front of you, seeing that Zacchaeus is a tax collector, you start to see some of his intersection in all of this darkness. Josephus writes so much about this. I wish there was time to really get into it, but what I need you to understand fundamentally at the get-go is Jericho is a dark place. It's like Gotham City. It's a dystopic place. It was a dark place with dark characters. Herod was a dark man who made Jericho into this dark place. His body, Herod's own body, is dark and riddled with disease. History records Herod having gangrene of the genitalia, having intestinal problems, skin issues. It is believed by modern medical historians that Herod uh, died actually of co a complex, uh, complexities with gonorrhea. He married 11 times. He had 10 wives that we know of and who knows however uh, other many women in his harem. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we see Herod as this deviant. We see him as a violent man. We see he ordered the massacre of the innocents. 
with the news of the Christ child that was born. He ordered for all the infants in the area to be, to be slaughtered. He's a violent man, and he has palaces in Jericho. A pagan writer named Macrobius wrote an account of Roman history and culture entitled Saturnalia, in which Macrobius references the slaughter of the innocents, and he quotes the Roman Caesar Augustus as saying, get this, on hearing that the son of Herod, king of the Jews, had been slain when Herod ordered all boys in Syria under the age of two to be killed, Augustus said, it is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And this is actually, when you're reading in the Greek, it's a, it's, there's a literary wordplay that goes on here because the word for pig is hus and the word for son is huias. Huias, hus. There's a little wordplay going on there that you miss in the translation. But incidentally, the reference to Antipater's execution is interesting because it coincides with Matthew's account of Christmas and the timing of Christmas, which of course the skeptics claim, oh, Christmas, you guys made that up and, and the rest. And you go, look, these quotes and these texts and all, it just keeps cooperating our faith. Anyway, speaking of the killing of his son while on his deathbed in Jericho, that, 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 that's where that went down. So, so Herod is in Jericho. He's on his deathbed. He ordered for his son to be killed. Again, it helps you to understand that when they hear Jericho, they're thinking of these powers and this darkness. We, when you read the histories of the time like Josephus, you go, wow, Jericho was a dark place. In Jericho, while he's on his deathbed, Herod, get this, he actually ordered, he's on his deathbed dying of gonorrhea, and he ordered for the soldiers and the state powers to gather up upwards of 300 Jewish men from the town who were loved community members and holy priests, and he ordered all of them to be round up, and he imprisoned them in his hippodrome, and he said, knowing that he was on his deathbed, when I die, when I give up the ghost, the soldiers are to kill all of those men in the Hippodrome so that there will be a wailing that comes out of the city of Jericho when I die. There should be a time of mourning and a time of wailing, and Herod knew that no one would cry when he died, so he called for the execution of hundreds of holy men from the culture. So this lets you understand uh, Jericho. When you step in and go, Jericho, whatever, and you read, and you, you can't orient yourself if you don't have this background. Even further, this tells us that Jesus was not afraid of the darkness. The text tells us that he goes there. He's not afraid of that place. He's not packing up his stuff and running because it was, it was too hard or whatever. No, no he's going he's gonna to give himself to go and to do ministry there. He goes there and he stares the darkness in the face. In fact, speaking of the Herods and dark stare-downs, Herod's son, Herod Antipas, was stared down literally by Jesus when Pontius Pilate sent him to trial, and Luke records that in Luke 23, verse 12. And father-like son, Herod Antipas, was a perverted, violent man who notoriously had John the Baptist decapitated alive in a gruesome public execution. And again, Jesus wasn't afraid to stare that wicked man who, who, who massacred his cousin, John the baptizer, store him in the face. In the face he stood before him and stared him down. Now speaking of faces, Luke 19 that is in front of us speaks of the face of this Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus. And like Jericho, Zacchaeus is a dark dude. Uh, he works in a dark industry, tax collectors uh, known as the publicans also. They're a part of the tyrannical state powers. 
The Roman government is wicked and oppressive, as I've shared in particular. They hate the Jewish people, but they tolerate them. They make money off of them. The Romans colonized their land, desecrated their religion, corrupted their culture. And one of their methods that they used for desecrating their religion and corrupting their culture was to use Jews against Jews. And so they would hire Jewish men and they would put them in these positions uh, in which they'd be involved in corrupting the culture and, and whittling it down. Tax collectors are a huge part of this tactic. Those publicans worked like subcontractors on behalf of the Roman government. The state gave them a lot of freedom to oppress people, and they were able to make a lot of money doing it. As long as they brought Daddy Rome home the big bucks, they could do whatever they wanted. They typically prepaid the Roman government, and then they charged uh, their own people to make profits. Taxation was everywhere. They taxed properties, travelers, worshipers, goods, and more. They, they would take over areas like gangs, and they would control those areas, and they would own those streets and the people in that town. And they would hire out you know, contractors underneath them who would pimp out the people for more profits. Luke describes Zacchaeus as wealthy, so he was a big pimping and spending the G's like a street hustler on the backs of his own people. You can imagine how it, it might have even started off innocent. But just a young boy who's, you know, a young boy who's trying to come up and work hard or whatever and trying to do right, and he gets this, you know, this city job, you know, it's, a, it's got some benefits to it or whatever, it's a, it's a good job, you know, and then you start going, hey, I can charge you a little extra, I can make a little extra. And then slowly, slowly, he's corrupted and brought into this system that's oppressing the people. Mo money, mo money, mo money, and little Zacchaeus becomes a part of the complex. Zacchaeus, we could say, was a sellout. In fact, he's viewed as a subhuman, we could say. As one scholar, Dr. James Edwards, notes in the text, Zacchaeus is described simply as a man. Luke's normal word for man is anthropos, a word occurring a hundred times in the third gospel, but the word used here, however, is aner, occurring one quarter as often, a hint perhaps that Zacchaeus is a dis disreputable character. He's not even anthropos. He's a monster. He's an enemy of the people. He's crushing the poor and using the powers of Rome. Scholars note that tax collectors were despised in Israel because they were viewed as extortionists and Roman collaborators. The Jewish Mishnah goes as far to say that it's permissible to lie to tax collectors to, to protect one's own property. All of this to say tax collectors were down and dirty. They're in the darkness. They're covered in blood and blood money. They're guilty. Ironically, Zacchaeus, his Greek name is the form of a Hebrew word, Zakai, which literally means innocent or clean. And he's far from it. He's far from it. You can imagine with a name like innocent that his parents had dreams of their boy growing up and serving their people and being a man who, who, who is Zakai, who's clean, who's innocent. And yet he's become a part of the complex. Later in verse 8, we'll see that Zacchaeus is aware of charges of defrauding others in the community that he controls. Zacchaeus would have been a popular man, but also a despised man. The kind of guy that you see and you walk the other direction, but not for Jesus. He was the kind of man that Jesus saw, and he says, yeah, that one right there. That dark sinner in that dark setting, I'm going to him. He came to save those in the worst of places so that his followers would know and that we would know today that salvation is a gift from God to the undeserving. Zacchaeus wasn't a brave, bold little guy 
He was an undeserving sinner who the Savior came to rescue. Jericho did nothing to deserve the presence of the innocent Lamb of God in its soiled seats. Before Luke chapter 19 and chapter 18, there is the record of Jesus in Jericho. He's saving a, a blind man. You see, Jericho is a place of the blind, a place of corruption, a place of oppression, a town of polarities, rich and poor, a town filled with false gods and, and powerful men who would never bow their knee. But by the grace of God, we're going to see a powerful man bowing his knee. We're going to be reminded of the salvation that comes to those in the darkness and our need for the Savior to come and rescue each one of us. Now, the way that Luke writes the narrative, it is clear that Jesus was in full control of the scene. Going to Jericho wasn't happenstance. It was an appointment. God had ordained that that day would be the day of salvation in, of all places, Jericho, and to, of all people, a tax collector. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You see that in verse 8? You see he's a part of the complex. He's acknowledging that the defrauding that goes on. The word in verse 8 of sycophantine, it's a Greek word that's used for extortionists. This is a town that extorts the weak. This, this, to extort is to obtain by force, threat, manipulation, and injustice. Those in power over others. Those who are economically, class-wise, racially, ethnically, politically in power over others, using those powers to extort the weak. He's a part of this complex. And this is who Jesus has come for. And from the way that Luke writes, it's very clear that Zacchaeus uh, feels some internal guilt as he comes into the presence of Christ, as you see here in, in verse 8. He, he's, being, he's being pulled into the Savior. It's like a, a tractor beam, a spiritual magnetic, that, that the magnetic force that's just pulling him in and pulling him in and pulling him in. The darkness in Jericho is being pulled out of him as he's being pulled closer to Christ. Uh, draw your eyes at verse 3. Let's pick up the narrative. I jumped ahead to show you a little something there in verse 8, but back up to verse 3. Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. I shared with you earlier that Luke walked away from a prominent career as a physician. And as a physician, it is no wonder that he records this detail here about him being small in stature. More than a detail of biology or history, and I'll get to that in just a moment, it serves rhetorically to create the image for the reader of this small man with all this great power. It's rhetorically, in terms of his writing, it's a very vivid way that he describes the scene. The man whose name is Innocence is filled with guilt. And look at this small man. If we were, you know, making the scene today for a short film, we might cast Kevin Hart to play uh, Zacchaeus, or, or Danny DeVito, you know, little Danny DeVito, throw mama from the train, just all gross, and you know, little Danny DeVito. While perhaps rhetorical and metaphoric, this detail is also literal. Again, remember, he's a physician writing this tidbit. The phrase that is used here, mikros te helikia, is used in the ancient world to describe people uh, who had small bodies. Uh, one scholar has shown how this phrase, mikros te helikika, is used for pathological dwarfism in the ancient world. So we, we live in a culture, uh, saying this, a little sidebar here, we live in a culture that's being coddled and pampered, 
which combined with our secular doctrines of so-called sizeism and body shaming has triggered many into thinking that comments about the size of a body are not okay. Even the physicians in our culture, trained scientists for Pete's sake, have to bow down and say that it's healthy to be morbidly obese. And the educated among us in positions of power struggle to define the bodies of males and females. And, and we want to remove these realities from the body instead of seeing there are males and females and tall and short. There's healthy, there's unhealthy, there's young, there's old. And, and, and really just running to God with those things and letting, letting God be Lord over them all. The body is a wonderful thing made in the image of God. Why are we running away from these things? Well, there's secular forces of darkness at work. The same, the same serpent that hissed around Jericho and made it into the place that it was is at work in our culture today. Now, to be sure, on my little soapbox of our culture today here, to be sure there are bullies in our day who body shame. There are people who moralize size and assign arbitrary aesthetics to sort of cast some groups into a caste system. And so here's the pretty and here's the ugly. And we need to watch out for oppression and nonsense. I love, by the way, how our Lord said in Samuel through the prophet, but the Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said, do not look at, at appearance or height or stature. I've rejected him. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Oh, that our day would be a day where we just looked at the heart. Alas, we are fallen, and so size matters to us in ways that don't matter to God. But back to the text, off the soapbox, uh, look at Luke, and look at little Zacchaeus. I think we could miss a detail here, and that's why I've paused on it, because uh, frankly, I, I, and of, of all the Bible teachers that I esteem, 99% uh, of them absolutely miss this and just keep on going in the text. You say, no, 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 you need to stop. This is a physician describing a patient. Every word in Scripture is inspired by God. So let's stop on this, this word here. It adds to seeing stereotypes of culture. As well, this could very well be a text not just about, the, uh, about you know, darkness and all the rest that I've already highlighted, but this is a, a text about deformity and disease. Recent scholars have, have, have actually begun to pick up on this, in particular with research that has been done on the phrase here and, uh, and dwarfism in the ancient world. Theologian Amos Young has written a very helpful essay on this in, in which he highlights how our societal fears uh, regarding disability can be seen in ways in which we read our Bible, which lead to a notion that disability is a problem needing to be fixed or eliminated, or which I would add, ignored along with uh, perhaps being a pun for rhetorical purposes of littleness of this little man and you know capturing this literally what is the physician recording as he gives us this tidbit well in dr young's uh, famous essay uh, it's entitled zacchaeus short and unseen he really impacts something that's insightful so forgive the extended quote here uh, but he really unpacks uh, how, how this gets at salvation and healing in a rather ironic and counterintuitive sense. I'll give, you, I'll give you the quote. Let's go through this quickly. Pay attention. On the one hand, nor made assumptions would have expected Jesus to heal the sick, impaired, and disabled. Jesus does no such thing in this case. Although he definitely acknowledges the presence of full health and the sense of salvation for Zacchaeus, on the other hand, the prejudices of the people are confronted. 
And Jesus' acceptance of Zacchaeus, just as he is, undermines their expectations that those who are impaired and disabled need to be fixed or cured in order to participate fully in the renewal and restoration of Israel. Zacchaeus becomes a disciple of the Messiah without having to go through the process of literally being stretched from his diminutive condition. As a counter to the normate readings of Luke 19 that all too often minimize, eradicate, or even render invisible, as impossible as that seems, Zacchaeus' littleness, it is not that disability and its various features are absent from the Bible. It is rather that normate interpretations are insensitive to their presence and thus overlook them. We just read past it and we keep going. And you go, go, oh, he's like Rudy. He's a little guy. Be brave. Stand up against peer pressure. Of course, most normate readers are not conscious of the marginalization of disability in their interactions with Scripture. The ableist bias is insensitive to the world of disability, and their normative assumption is that the world as it ought to be will not feature any signs or marks of impairment, even those related to Ill littleness. It, it thus never occurs to them that what they are rendering invisible is actually essential to the message of the gospel that comes to specific human beings. The result is not only an overlooking of important features of a text expressive of their salvific message of the gospel, but the perpetuation of an oppressive social imagination that has negative repercussions for people with disabilities. My claim, Dr. Young writes, However, is that the Bible really is good news for all people, including those with disabilities. Perhaps what the Zacchaeus story teaches us is that human beings are equals both in their sinfulness and need for repentance and in their being accepted as children of Abraham regardless of their physical characteristics or their capabilities. Now that was a mouthful. But with that said, as you read the text, imagine what Luke has literally told you. Imagine Zacchaeus' parents who, who name him innocent and righteous and they have dreams for their son. Imagine him around his second, third birthday when his legs aren't growing and he looks a little different. Imagine their fears. Maybe even he was abandoned. Maybe his dad was ashamed and, and walked away and got involved in the orgies of Jericho and he doesn't know his dad. Imagine a kid struggling to survive. A kid then who gets pimped out by the powers and becomes a part of the actual problem. Imagine this, this little Danny DeVito, you know, kind of character or whatever. You know, it's like, he's a villain. Speaking of Danny DeVito, right? Like the penguin in Batman. He's, he's a, a disabled villain. He's small. He's, he's struggling. He's in the darkness. He, he, a disabled villain. He's Samuel Jackson in Glass or the Unbreakable film series. In a wheelchair, he's bound, he's broken. He's not the kind of guy the stereotypes of his day would expect to become the very picture of salvation. And our culture blinds us from reading the riches of God's Word because we move past details so quickly when we don't take the time to read the Bible in its context. The crowds are covering him, he can't see. This isn't a, a little short guy who's brave and is climbing up the tree. This is a disabled guy who's being marginalized by the crowds who just toss him to the side and could care less. This is a culture not like ours where we're careful to have handicap accessibility and stuff like that. And we, you know, we have uh, intersections and you know, pedestrians have the right of way. I was recently in a peculiar place in the world where there's not even cars that drive in lines and people could care less and you're just discarded on the streets. That's the world that he lives in. 
He's literally hobbling around just to get a look. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 4. He ran ahead and he climbed into the sycamore tree to, to see Jesus. Or Jesus was about to pass through that way. Again, if, if he's disabled, right? Just imagine the scene, how hard this is. Imagine the, the, what we know about the culture, too. If, if he were an able-bodied man, it would still be embarrassing to climb up in a tree like that. It, 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 it would be absolutely embarrassing, an honor-shame culture, for a man to be climbing in a tree like that. And here you have a crippled, corrupted, dark man up in the tree. This is why the, the, the flannel board, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Another small feature of the text that has been missed, depending on the meticulous of your teachers in the past, is the mention of the sycamore tree. Contrary to what the felt boards have shown you, this is not the European sycamore. Rather, this is the indigenous fig mulberry, Ficus sycamorus, which was cultivated in ancient times. Here's a picture of one from the Jordan Valley, so you can get an idea of what it would have looked like. They can grow over 60 feet. They have branches that are lateral that can be climbed. Here is a picture of one that a tour guide in Israel has posted from Netanya National Park. And you can see in this one in particular how a little guy could get up in there and begin to climb up. But, you know, if I saw a handicapped guy in a tree, I mean, my heart's going to break. I'm going to go, man, let me help this guy. Let me, let me do something. Let me... You remember the scene with the paralytic? And what do his friends do? They carry him to Jesus. This is a little handicapped guy. Like, why aren't you carrying him? Why aren't you bringing him? Why don't you care? This shows you the darkness of Jericho. It helps you to visualize this scene. This is not just a story about a man. It's a story about humanity. We are the inhabitants of Jericho. We are marred by death and dysfunction. We are marred by disease. There's not a body in this room that doesn't have something wrong with it. And this is the good news of the gospel. Not only that our sins can be washed and set free, but the hope of resurrection where the impairments of the body will be fully healed and the first fruits of what has come in Christ will come to fruition. And all this begins here in, in real life, in real history, real manuscripts, real dirt, real all of it, when the eternal Son of God stepped in as a man. We worship a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sent the Son to become a man. He became a man because humanity is diseased and dying and dysfunctional. He became a man, not just any old man, but this Jewish man and the promises that were made to Abraham and the prophets and Moses and David, and he fulfills all of those. And for outsiders, he includes Gentiles and outcasts and tax collectors and all of it. All of it. And so as we read the text, we see the Savior's compassion as we've taken the time to have this context of the darkness of the scene. Look at the text, verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus! You hurry and you come down for today. I must stay at your house. Now, well, while the text does not give the epistemology of Jesus, knowing that he is God in the flesh, it would be no surprise for him to know Zacchaeus by his name and, and to know even more about him. We see Jesus using his, his divine nature in the gospel accounts to do things like this, to know things about people and say stuff that he otherwise wouldn't have access to know. Most notably, he says things like, I've, you know, God forgives you. That is the prerogative of God to give alone. Behold, he's God in the flesh. He has that prerogative. That said, knowing that in the incarnation of the eternal son becoming a man, Jesus also relies on his human nature. So it could be the fact that he simply heard some people uh, saying his name, so he knew his name. 
Maybe the crowds were mocking him. Zach Zacchaeus, he's going to fall. Watch the little, yeah, that's what you get, you dirt bag. Maybe they're mocking him. Maybe Jesus actually saw him and began to ask people, hey, who's, who's, who's the, the suffering outcast in the, in the tree there? Well, we, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that Jesus is fully God and man in one person, the eternal incarnate Son, He's in complete and total control. That's what we know on this Jericho journey. He was Zacchaeus' maker and his sovereign, and he had come to bring Zacchaeus to himself. Bottom line, little Zac thought that he was looking for Jesus, but it was actually the other way around. Verse 6, And he hurried and he came down and he received him gladly. The outcast has been received, the text tells us. The hurried one has been given rest. The greedy has been made glad. Oh, what a day for him. Note that for, for the rest, this wasn't a happy day. It was not well received. Jesus just committed social suicide. So had Zacchaeus. Scholars note that it was considered undignified, as I already noted, for a grown man to, to climb around like that, let alone to run to someone. It was undignified. It was unexpected. It was unwelcomed. And look at how the crowds react. When they saw it, verse 7, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now think of all the people that had passed by. Think of all the wicked people in the town. Right? And they're taking it out on, on him. The crowd is mad that Jesus has befriended Zacchaeus. The mention of, of, of Zacchaeus' home reminds us of his position of power and his sordid gain. He was rich on the backs of his people. Understandably, the crowd is confused and angry, understandably because they're dead in their sins and sinners always miss grace. We see grace and in our sin, we are like the bigger brother in the parable of the prodigal son and we balk at grace when it is extended. This is not the first time in Luke that we have seen this response. In Luke chapter 7, Luke quoted the, the, the Twitter feed of his day. What, what do we read there? Oh, they say that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was the greatest way to marginalize him of the day. He's, he's, he's friends with our oppressors. How can he be our Messiah? Here again we see Luke 19 and we see this tweet. The people are Twitter triggered. The keyboard warriors are coming out. He's a friend of sinners. They're hashtag Jesus, friend of sinners. He's a friend of a specific notorious sinner who's not only an outsider, but he is super wealthy. And now Jesus is hanging out in his house. Jesus is in the, in the hills of Hollywood hanging out with the celebrities. Can you imagine him at a rich handicap? big old house in Hollywood that everyone hates that guy? Uh, mind you the context. In, in the ancient world, hospitality is absolutely everything. Kosher law is absolutely everything. And so there's a tension here in the text. We see this with hospitality and Jesus washing feet and being clean is important for being uh, together in a home. We know that he is considered unclean by the law of Moses this deformed man, he's considered unclean. What is the clean doing with the unclean? What, what, what is he doing with him? Jesus taught his disciples to welcome the stranger. Jesus modeled foot washing as a symbol of the cleansing that he offers. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Note that this line, to be a guest, comes from one Greek word, kataluo, which is used here for lodging with someone. 
You might recall in last year's Christmas series on fake news at Christmas, I shared with you about the word kataluma, which Luke uses at Jesus' birth in Luke 2, 7. We also see it in 22, 11 to describe a family guest room that the Holy Family stayed in when Jesus was born. Contrary to popular modern Christmas images, Jesus wasn't born backwoods in a stable all by himself. It was in a kataluma in a home. Once again in Luke, we see Jesus in a home, and his presence inside of a home angers those who are outside. Herod, when he was a child, was angry at Christ being in a home, a kataluma. Here, now again, the crowds are angry that he has come to the kataluma. And, and from the get-go in Luke's gospel, Jesus was pushing these boundaries. Jesus' first public sermon in the gospel of Luke was about ethnic inclusion, about playing with ethnic stereotypes of the day, and the people wanted to push him off of a cliff for it. Fallen man doesn't like it when, when things get reversed in such a way to expose our need of grace because our default in our fallen condition is works-based righteousness. Fallen man wants to pride himself on what he has done. Jesus should have came to town, and he should be having a meal with the, with the real of the city. Instead, he's, he's with that guy. And we continue with all sorts of varieties of this default position in our fallen hearts. Uh, how often do we hear today, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not, you know, as, right? What, what are you saying? Well, being religious is bad. Being spiritual is good. And in another generation, it'll be something else. Well, I'm not spiritual. I'm all-inclusive, elemental P, QRS, plus, plus, whatever, you know, and, and then you just keep on wearing your badge of identity. You, you keep on virtue signaling that you are good in the eyes of, of God and man. Unlike fallen man that appeals to himself this way, the, the man that God brings to the waters of salvation comes thirsty and openly cries out, I have no well, I have no drawstring. I have no bucket to pull from. And so too Zacchaeus comes and he's humbled by his sin. We see the evidence that the Spirit was working in him in repentance of faith. We already saw verse 8. Look at it again. See what he says. Behold, Lord, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone, I will give back four times as much. I've already noted that this word for defrauded is a word that means extortion. He's come to see his sin. He wants to make things right. He offers to give back four times as much. This is beyond what the Torah of Moses had called for, uh, for, for, for the crime of extortion of the day. It is worth noting that in the original Greek here, the, this verse is really interesting because he uses the present tense. Half of my possessions uh, uh, I now give, uh, in other words, would be a literal rendering, which leads uh, many interpreters of the Bible were, were like, oh, well, maybe he actually was a virtuous guy because he says, I, I give those in the present tense. And he was just being stereotyped because he was handicapped and marginalized and, and whatever. You know, maybe that's what's going on with the tense here. I don't take it that way because what follows next is Jesus saying that salvation has come today. So the present tense then is being used not because he was already an upright man, but the present tense is being used as a dramatic response from a sinner who has been changed on the spot. And some of you have experienced this power. God grabbed a hold of you and changed you right away. And so he says, I, I now give. His, his life has been changed I love the, the notes on the, uh, the New English Translation Bible. It says, Zacchaeus was a penitent man who was resolved on the spot to act differently in the face of Jesus' acceptance of him. 
In resolving to give half of his possessions to the poor, Zacchaeus was not defending himself against the crowd's charges and claiming to be righteous. Rather, as a result of this meeting with Jesus, he was a changed individual. And so Jesus could speak of salvation coming that day. Look at verse 9. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Salvation had come, and notice the text was not in response to Zacchaeus' works or righteousness. Jesus didn't say that. Because you're going to be a better you, I'm going to save you. Because you're brave, I'm going to save you. Because you're going against the crowds, I'm going to save you. Because you're a cute little guy, I'm going to save you. No, 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 Jesus is the one who's doing the seeking and the saving. Verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The Savior gets the credit for saving, not fallen man for his mortal works. Luke 19 is loud and clear. In fact, it it was clear in Luke 18. We read at the the beginning of our service the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee appealed to his works and cried out to God about how special he was. And the publican who beat his chest and acknowledged that he did not deserve it. And then comes grace to the undeserving. Zacchaeus got grace. Luke tells us that he too was a son of Abraham. You see, in their day, tax collectors were considered to have forfeited their rights as children of the great patriarch and promise, Abraham. And so, too, Luke is careful in saying this to remind his readers of something that Jesus and the apostles spoke about, namely that there's a difference between being biological children of Abram and being spiritual children of Abram. This teaching is to drive home the emphasis of new birth. You must be born again. Zacchaeus was born again. It's not enough to be born biologically and claim some lineage to the great patriarch. You must be born again. You must have a new heart. You must receive his forgiveness. And here we see it was received. And here we see it was done in the public. Everyone saw it. And before this, everyone saw the rich young ruler. Remember the different response of the rich young ruler in the chapter just before this? He walked away empty-handed, narrow as the gate, easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle for a rich man to be saved. And here we see the rich man saved. He was given grace. And again, what is grace? It's what we don't deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve punishment. And that is the sobering conclusion of the passage before us. We have to move quickly. Verse 11, while they were listening to these things, this tells you that you don't want to stop at verse 10. It's continuing. What things are they listening to? Well, this whole exchange with Jesus and Zacchaeus, this grace, this salvation that has come to him. Verse 11 says, Jesus went on to tell a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly message for life in the earth. That said, parables are intended to be provocative and they are quite messy. That is, the heavenly message doesn't always look heavenly because it involves pictures from the earth. And in this case, the parable that he offers involves slavery and violence. That said, it is not an endorsement of the injustice of slavery or of violence. Rather, the parable is a dystopic story to point us to utopian longings that the earth cannot fulfill. Let's do this really quickly. We'll look at the story, verses 11 through 15, then the subjects, and finally the smackdown. Verse 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. The expectation of the prophets was that the kingdom of God was going to come. Even after Jesus conquered the grave, risen from the dead, and had his disciples, uh, they were asking this. Look, in Acts chapter 1 in front of you, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? 
Jericho is, uh, is not far from Jerusalem. He's headed that way. You got a little map on your outline. He's headed that way. Palm Sunday, that's when that goes down. Prophecy said the Messiah is going to come to Israel and he's going to overthrow all the enemies. And when are you going to overthrow Rome? When are you going to do this? That is the pressure that is mounting. On the heels of providing salvation for this man, it seems the crowds were, they don't care. They don't care that he just saved this guy and changed his life. They, they got eschatology questions. And so he gives a story, a really dark story. And again, it's not an endorsement of slavery. It's an earthly story from their own dark culture that was filled with slavery to, to make a point. Verse 12, he said, Nobleman went from a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Verse 13, and he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas and he said to them, do business with it until I come back. A mina is about 100 drachmas, which uh, one drachma is about a day's wages. So this is like 100 days of wages, uh, you know, a few months of, of wages here. And on this note, let me point out that the ancient form of slavery is radically different from the demonic race-based slavery that, that took place in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, that was racial. The, the slavery that went on at the time of Jesus was different. Uh, masters weren't handing out money uh, in the transatlantic slave trade. But uh, suffice it to say, again, this isn't an endorsement of slavery. It's using a dystopic, dark thing to make a point. But his citizens, verse 14, hated him. And he sent a delegation after them saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. We move from the story now to the subjects. We read of three subjects. Verse 16. It first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made me ten minas more. And then he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You have authority over ten cities. Um, the second came saying, Your mina, master, has made me five minas. And he said to him also, You are going to be over five cities. Uh, the first guy did business like he told him and he managed to score a 1,000% increase. The second dude was not as successful but still a 500% increase is pretty nice. Keep in mind, dystopic parable, Jesus isn't offering a lesson on business, business ethics here. The king is shady, he owns people, the slaves are shady. The way that they would have made profit would have been by hooking and crooking and extorting and all the rest, it's a dark story. These guys hustled for their master, and he was happy about it. And here's a twist in the plot. Look at verse 20. Another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I put it away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. So this guy didn't obey his master who told him to do business, and he adds insult to injury in blaming his inactivity on the master. I, 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 you know, I would have done something, but you know, you're so exacting. It's your fault that I didn't do anything. And he said to him, verse 22, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? And then you didn't put money in the bank and have it coming, and you would have, I could have collected it with interest. He sees through his excuse. If I was so exacting, all the more reason to act. But you didn't. Hence, you're in trouble. Keep in mind the point of the parable. It's not a business ethics class. This is an eschatology class. You guys are asking questions about why the kingdom hasn't come and the postponement of the kingdom. And the reality is, the kingdom hasn't come because you've rejected the king. This is a story about people who've rejected the king and didn't want him coming. 
This is a text, as I told you in the beginning of the introduction, that Luke has written for Theophilus and others to understand. Why are there all these outsiders and Gentiles who've been brought into this if he's the Messiah of Israel? Because the people rejected the king. And for the people to understand, guess what? This is all a part of the plan of God's redemption. He's using your rejection for your redemption. And so in between the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom, there's this in-between time the age of the Gentiles, where he's pulling in all these people into his covenant, and he's pouring out blessings on people who don't deserve it. Verse 24, then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him, give it to the one who has ten minas, and they said to him, Master, he already has ten. How is this fair? Oh, it's not. It's grace. And I tell you, verse 26, that to everyone who has more, more will be given, and to the one who does not have, even to what he has will be taken away. But these, verse 27, enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Verse 27 is the smackdown. This all sets the stage for next week, Palm Sunday, when he rides into Jerusalem, and they ignore everything that he's just said, and they try to, they try to inaugurate the very kingdom of God. And they're going to shout Hosanna, they're going to shake palm branches, and they're going to miss the whole thing. And all of this is a reminder to us that we too would miss the whole thing, but by the grace of God. This is a long section, it's a long section, that really begins around Luke 12, and it ends right here with this raw reality of judgment. And it, it, it offends our sensibilities if we don't have the greater story in mind or we think somehow that humanity is deserving of something other than a smackdown. If you're not paying attention to the news, seeing what Russia is doing in the Ukraine, if you didn't know what Russia was doing in the Ukraine and you hadn't watched the news at all and then you turn on the news and you saw Ukraine just, you know, uh, you go, man, well, that was really mean of them. How, why did they do that? you got to know there's a, there's a war going on. You got to know that there's there's scores of people who've been slaughtered. There's over four million refugees who've now fled the Ukraine and moved west, and and many of them are women and children because the men had to stay behind and fight this dumb war. And so you've got women and children being trafficked and all kinds of evil going on. And wars end with this very ending that we have in front of us, with a power being squashed. And brothers and sisters, that power. That power that is the ultimate power that will squash all powers is the kingdom of God. And the king has come. And he told us to pray for his kingdom to come. He told us to get together and worship him. He told us to take this cup of communion and to proclaim his death until he returns. He, he told us that when he returns, it's not going to be pretty. The smackdown that Jericho has coming, it's, it's not going to be pretty. The smackdown that the nations have coming, it, 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 it's not going to be pretty. A people will accuse God and say, God's not good, look at all the evil in the world. And then you say, oh, he's, he's going to end it all. And they say, oh, that's mean, that's not loving. Well, which way would you have it, friend? You've run out of excuses for him. He is a loving and kind and patient God. That's why he is, he is, he is patient with us in an age like this where we see just wars and rumors of war all around us. He is a loving and patient God to you personally today who, who hear my word. Just as he came for Zacchaeus, he has come for you. And it's not the other way around. He has come seeking you this day through his word and through this cup to call you unto himself and to tell you his body was broken for you. We open the top of the cup and we, we see this picture of his body, the eternal son taking on flesh. 
And more than putting it in your mouth, have Him in your heart. Cry out to Him and be saved by Him. He was broken for you. Let's celebrate, church. Meals make families and homes. Zacchaeus was received by Jesus' family. Zacchaeus was transformed by Jesus. The blood that is pictured in the cup of the juice is a reminder of the power of the blood of Christ that transforms sinners. Zacchaeus' uh, church tradition holds that he became the bishop of Caesarea, very active power for good. This reminds us that no one is too bad or too rejected to have a homecoming in Christ. More than a homecoming, to be changed by Christ. A greedy, dark man being turned into a generous, humble man who gives it all away. Oh, the power of grace and the infinite worth of Christ that brings the wealthy to reject their, their possessions and reject their pride to find true fulfillment in Him. This passage comforts me in my sin. It calls me to repentance and faith. I see my craving for earthly riches and accolades, and then I see the true riches that are in Christ, who laid down the heavens to come and suffer in the earth, to be marginalized for me, to suffer at the hands of Herods and sinners for me, to take my sin and your sin and our guilt and shame. I deserve to be climbing in trees trying to get a glimpse, but he has welcomed me and made his home with me, and he has done it by the power of his blood." If there is hope for me and hope for Zacchaeus, there is hope for all who hear this message this day. And further, there is hope for all of the prodigals in our lives. Listen, the policemen, the programs, the persons, the prisons, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the public health, they'll never be able to convert the soul of a man. They'll never be able to change a man within. It must come from God. I think of Zacchaeus as I, I close today reminding you to have hope in the power of the gospel for your loved ones. And thinking of his parents who gave him that name innocent and thinking of what his life became and seeing what he went off to and, and how they must have felt watching their son's life and all of that and seeing him you know, in the crowds and he can't see anything and, and then God coming and grabbing him and changing his life. There's not a parable in your life, dear brother or sister, who the Savior who goes to Jericho and goes to Zacchaeus cannot rescue and cannot save. And don't you ever stop praying for the prodigals in your life. Don't you ever stop seeking God to make you bold. Because it's this word that has the power to save. The parable tells us and reminds us of the power of his word. And it reminds us of the darkness of our world. And it reminds us that we are slaves in the world. But the master doesn't care. He's come to rescue sinners and slaves and make us his own. And now we come in response and gratitude, having celebrated his table, to offer a couple of closing songs and cry out to him and say, thank you, Lord. We sing because we're thankful for what he has done. And we sing because we're hopeful for he is to come. And we sing because we are on the edge of our seats waiting to see him to save and to move and to go into the margins and, and just blow our minds with his grace. So let me pray and let us sing as we close our worship service. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, he came for us. We thank you that his ministry was not in the, the hills of the high places with the holy but his ministry was in the gutters with derelicts and, 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 and the depraved. 
And Lord, we, we are blown uh, by this text reminding us of that. And so I pray this morning that as we come now in song, Lord, you would be ministering to us in the word that we have heard and that you would be magnifying and glorifying yourself in the songs that we sing. Have your way with this time of praise, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>